in John chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. Praise the Lord. Let's pray this morning. Father, we confess that we are limited and we are full of questions, and we look to you because you are good and because you are limitless, and you are the answer that we need. Open the eyes of our hearts and give us a revelation of your son, Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, you may be seated. Why me? I know that uh, we've all asked this question many times over. I was reminded of, of something that sort of lives in infamy uh, in, my, in my ministry experience. I had this awesome idea for an outreach here at Calvary Christian Center called Cinco de Mayo. And some of you uh, may remember this because you were scarred by it yourself, if you were involved in it, or if you were there as a witness to this uh, I'll just briefly uh, share with you what happened. Um, I had this great idea for an outreach, and you know, um, we were going to do it outside. I had a great crew of guys put together an outdoor uh, wooden stage, and I had folklorico dancers coming, had all the businesses in the area donating bikes and toys and stuff to raffle off. Uh, we had all kinds of things prepared. We put together an illustrated sermon about the history of Cinco de Mayo and how, how Juarez led the peasants to revolt and throw off the French occupiers out of Mexico and then relate that you know, to how Jesus came and sets us free from all of our oppressors. And, and I even had a translator, a friend of mine who's a a missionary in South America, so that it could all be translated on the spot into Spanish because, you know, there was a lot of uh, Hispanic people who were being, you know, brought and invited to this uh, big event. And, and so everything was uh, put together and planned and ready to roll. And about an hour before go time, it starts to rain. And it's all supposed to be outdoors. So I, um, I, I told the guys who put that stage together, we, we've got to, we've got to, overhaul this whole thing. Let's put it into the gym. So with no planning time, no preparation, no rehearsal time, we move the entire event into the gym. And uh, some things that, you know, uh, I can go down a litany of things here, like the folklorico dancers got excited when it was finally their turn, they wouldn't get off the stage, and... In the illustrated message, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to call anybody out or embarrass anybody because, you know, he attends here, but the actor that I had to portray, Juarez, the brave leader of the revolt, uh, I had him, you know, deliver a paragraph when it was his time in the story, and the peasants were backstage waiting for their cue with their, you know, um, garden tools to run out, you know, and revolt, and uh, the, the man playing Juarez walks up next to me on the stage, 
and he looks out over at me and he says, I'm sorry. And he turns around and walks off the stage. He forgot his lines. <laughs> so there was no cue and no peasants came out. I had to make it up on the spot. And, and then the interpreter that I had with me, you know, I didn't realize, and neither did he until we were in the moment, that the Spanish spoken in South America <laughs> and the Spanish spoken here are, are different. And then, of course, you know, the cross, when it finally came time in the illustrated message to show Jesus and uh, setting us free and, and what he did on the cross, well, the outdoor stage, wooden stage that we had set up, had a hole cut out in it to receive the cross. Now, imagine this cross at the bottom of it is shaved down to a pencil point. And now that same cross is in the gym and there's no hole. So the Roman guard, who I will add his Roman uh, guard costume was a little small on him, now has to hold the cross in place because it's on a pencil point at the bottom. And Jesus is doing this number. His eyes are bugging out. He really thought he was going to die that, that day. And by the time it was over, I was asking, why me? Something happens, doesn't it? You didn't get that job that you were hoping for, or you lost the one that you had, or you get a report from the doctor, and it changes everything. Our lives are fragile, aren't they? And it just takes one moment to turn everything upside down. And it's a normal question to ask, why? Why is this happening? You know, it's one of the first questions that we ask as kids. Mila comes up to me all the time. Why, Daddy? And as adults, we want to dig deeper. We want to find meaning behind the pain that we experience so that perhaps we could learn something or maybe so that we could blame someone or so that we could focus on something else besides the hurt and the fear and the frustration that we feel when we're suffering. Why was this man born blind? The disciples are like us and that they want to understand. And they're walking with Jesus, and they come across this beggar who's born blind. And the religious teachers of the time drew a one-to-one -one correlation, and here's what that means. If you do right, and you have good intentions, God will bring happiness and prosperity to bless you. But if you do wrong, and you have bad intentions, God will bring suffering and pain to curse you. Some people call that karma. It's a teaching from Buddhism. Anyway, these teachers had derived this line of thought from the law delivered through Moses because in the covenant, the general terms of the contract go something like this. If you do this, then I will do this. And Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your children will live. Okay, so now, more than a thousand years later, Jesus, the Son of God, is on the scene. But the religious leaders have crushed the covenant under a load of rules and regulations that make life ridiculously complex and make God seem very far away. And the current teaching of the time was that if a child was born with a defect, it was because that unborn baby must have been so dreadfully sinful even before birth that God punished it with a defect. Or 
it was because the parents of that unborn child were doing something so despicable that God punished them with a physically defective baby. And ideas like that still exist in some circles today. The utter failure to understand the heart of God and the nature of suffering is echoed in the teachings of John Calvin when he told the Christian women in his congregation who suffered the death of a stillborn baby that that baby died because God predestined it to go to hell anyway. Can you imagine someone saying that to you after you go through that experience? Smooth move, Calvin. And this sort of thinking still drags on to this day because people are trying to understand why. And the disciples were thinking about this very thing while they were walking with Jesus. And here's this man. And everyone knows that he was born blind, probably because he's announcing that fact as he's begging in the street. And also because there's something visibly not right with whatever has formed in his eye sockets. It was obvious. And here an opportunity presents itself to gain a deeper understanding of why bad things happen. And so they jump on it. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Like the religious, they assumed that these things happen because people deserve it. So why do bad things happen? Well, let me just be Captain Obvious here for a moment. And yes, sometimes our sins and our stupidity have, have a direct cause and effect. You know, um, it's something you've probably heard of called the Darwin Awards. Someone goes off and they choose to do something fabulously stupid and they lose their life and then the internet awards them the Darwin Award. The universe was created with justice. If you choose to jump off of a high rise, you're going to die when you hit the pavement. If you choose to stick your hand in fire, it's going to burn you. If you choose to gossip about people, you're going to end up with few, if any, real friends. If you choose to make a movie about a robot sent back in time to preemptively assassinate the leader of a war between machines and humans, you're going to be condemned to remake that movie again and again for four decades, at least. Bad choices, they result in bad consequences. And conversely, if you choose to save more money than you spend and avoid debt, you're going to wind up with more financial peace than your friends. If you choose to help set the table and put away the dishes and clean up around the house, your wife will flirt with you more. It's a proven fact, and I've just helped half the congregation this morning. Amen. If you choose to do acts of kindness and goodness for other people, your brain releases a chemical called oxytocin, and it actually makes your body feel better. In fact, if you just watch someone do something kind and good for someone else, your brain releases that same chemical, and it inspires you to do something good as well. Good choices have good consequences, and the universe is set up that way because it was made by God. And God wants us to know that he is just and that our behavior matters to him. So he set it up in such a way that even the most simple-minded could learn this about him and be inspired to move away from self-destructive behavior and move towards behavior that has good results. But sometimes... As you and I know, bad things happen 
unforeseen, tragic. And I don't have to ask why my finger hurts when I smash it with a hammer. No, it's when things go wrong in ways that are unexpected, in ways that are overwhelming, that we question God. And Jesus rejects the premise of the disciples' question. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus helps us to put our focus in the right place. You know, in the news media, they say, if it bleeds, it leads. We have an unhealthy appetite for feeding on negativity and scandals, and we move at lightning speed when it comes time to assign the blame. And it doesn't help that our world is a target-rich environment when it comes to that stuff. It's constant. And Jesus helps us to look away from the sin and the blame game and look to God who stands ready to help us in our sufferings. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So stop focusing on what Jesus wants to get rid of. Focus on God and what he wants to reveal about himself through difficult circumstances. Jesus wasn't saying that that man born blind and his parents were sinless and perfect people. No. When it comes to finding out who is sinless, draw a circle around Jesus. Everyone outside that circle is a sinner. Does that help? What Jesus is saying is that this happened. It happened. Sometimes things happen. And it had nothing to do with what you did or you didn't do. It wasn't karma. Bad things happen on our broken planet. And if you insist on digging around for someone to blame, you're going to miss the thing that's most important, that God cares about your suffering. He wants to show his works and reveal his character through the difficulties that you are facing. Character gets formed through hardship, through overcoming obstacles, through enduring despite difficulties. Courage would be impossible in our world if there was no such thing as pain. Struggles refine us, and often it's pain that brings out the best in us. If no one was ever suffering in Calcutta, there would be no Mother Teresa to spend her life there alleviating it and ministering to those who are suffering with the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God understands our suffering because he experienced it through his son, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2 says, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And in chapter 4 it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just like we are, but without sin. Because of the fact that Jesus lived among us and because of the suffering that he endured, he can sympathize and empathize with us 
And it makes our God unlike the false gods of Islam or Buddhism. The Islamic version of God is a harsh dictator who just doles out judgment on the earth. And the Buddhist version of God is an impersonal force that simply doesn't care about the suffering that people experience. Our God has lived in our world. Our God became a man to live life with us, and yes, to suffer with us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Our God understands suffering, and he embraces it. Jesus helps us to overcome our trials by focusing us in the right direction. He reminds us that we can take heart through the worst of it because he has overcome the world. And he helps us to answer the question, why? Not with blame and pointed fingers and lists of sins, but with the work of God being revealed in us. Romans chapter 5 says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. And in chapter 8, it says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Say amen to that, who've been called according to his purpose. Jesus shows us that good can come out of suffering, and that is the will of Christ and the work of God. Something you should probably know about God is that he's the best person in the entire universe, and he knows it. And it's not an arrogant thing for him. It's, it's just a point of fact. God can't be arrogant because that would then be imperfection. And God can't be proud because being proud means that you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. No, God actually is flawlessly perfect. And therefore, he is also incredibly humble. But he doesn't shy away from showing us how awesome he is. Because number one, he's crazy in love with us. And he wants to engage us in a relationship. And two, he knows that we need help in all kinds of ways. And that he's the best one to come and help us with our needs. So when he does a miracle in your life, guess what? It's not just about only you. It's also about everyone around you who's witnessing it happen. And seeing something about God being revealed in your life. And this miracle that we read about in John chapter 9 takes place at a very public time. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people around. And Jesus says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, that pool of Siloam was quite a distance down from where they were having that conversation. I want you to imagine in your mind something akin to an Olympic-sized pool with steps of cut stone and all kinds of patios all, all around it for crowds to surround it. This wasn't um, like a recreational vacation spot for people to go swimming. No, what the pool of Siloam was was something like what our baptismal tank is here at church. It was a place of ritual baptism before the people would go up into the temple to worship God. 
Remember what David said in Psalm 24, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. You see, baptism wasn't a once in a lifetime event. It was something that worshipers did every single time they came to the temple to worship God to observe the feasts of the Lord and the holy days. Remember that this is ha- when this is happening. So it's crowded with worshipers. Everyone sees it. And according to the law, no one with a physical defect could come and enter the temple. So this man is not only an outcast from birth, from a society that blames him or possibly his parents, but also he's an outcast from ever being allowed to draw near to God by entering the temple. So from his perspective, no one wants me, not even God. And Jesus was going to make a way for this man to truly enter, eternally enter God's presence and discover that he was welcome there and he wouldn't be rejected anymore. God was about to display something profound about himself through this man born blind. Do you know that God wants to display something about himself through your life in spite of your trouble, in spite of your shortcomings, in spite of your suffering? God wants to touch your life and impart something about himself into you, a light of truth that will shine through the brokenness. And as I stated, there's only one reason to wash in that pool to prepare yourself spiritually to enter the presence of God. And Jesus is saying to this man, I'm about to give you something you've never had before. Hope that you can enter and experience the presence of God, that you can be whole, that you can be accepted by God, that you are loved, that you do belong, that you can experience God's presence. But first, Jesus puts mud on his face. And it's an illustrated sermon for everyone watching that dirty blind man make his way, stumbling, reaching out. Maybe someone, an adult or a child, took him, took pity on him and and led him to the waters of spiritual cleansing. And he looked ridiculous with mud all over his face. And he's splashing and washing and he's making himself clean. He was blind, but he stops and he squints and he sees his hands for the first time, and he looks into the water and he sees his face. And can you imagine the scene as he starts running around and, and like grabbing people and random things and holding them up and saying, I, I can see you, I can see you, I can see your face I've never seen before, but I can see you now. And it's worth pointing out here that the only objection to what Jesus is saying and doing comes from the religious. I had a lady once confess to me that she struggled with her relationship with food. She had some pain in her past and some insecurities that manifested in an eating disorder. She was a nice person, pleasant conversation, warm personality. She just had some pain and some struggles inside that she wrestled with. And she told me that at the church that she was a part of, that they told her that the reason why she had this struggle was because she was demon-possessed. And they proceeded to make her lie down on a table all night while they attempted to exorcise the demons that they told her were living inside of her. Sometimes religious people 
are worse than just misguided or dumb. Sometimes they just add insult to injury and do it in the name of God. Like when a widow came up to me and told me that the people in her church told her the reason that her husband died was because she didn't have enough faith to believe that God could heal him. Religious people, they major in minors, and they accuse Jesus of not following the process. Jesus, you're doing it wrong. And they challenged his authority, and they challenged his parentage, and they challenged his teachings. Religious people view themselves as champions of the law, somehow failing to understand that the law is the very thing that condemns all of us. And they reject his notion that they need to be saved or set free from anything. We are the children of Abraham. And when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he was giving them a clear choice. It's me or eternal darkness. And the miracle becomes an illustration for them of a spiritual principle that light received results in more sight, but light rejected results in greater blindness. And the miracle is such a profoundly clear calling card of the messiahship of Jesus. And so the religious have only two options. They either, one, admit that Jesus is the Son of God and get down on their knees in front of their king, or two, somehow they they have to discredit or dismiss this event. So their first objection is that they, they dismiss it outright as a fake, a phony, a fraud event. It's staged, but when it becomes clear that it is real and it actually happened, well, then they try to dismiss Jesus by claiming that he sinned by working on the Sabbath day. And so they call in family members and everybody. It's a formal investigation and they threaten people with excommunication. It's all very appropriately int- intimidating because religious people depend on fear and intimidation to hold on to their power. And so after calling in the man who was healed multiple times, finally he gets frustrated. And he says, I told you already, and you didn't listen to me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? So then they hurled insults at him, and they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And so the man said, well, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, but he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will, and nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. So if he weren't from God, he could do nothing. He's a theologian now. And so to this they replied, you were steeped in sin from birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out and they excommunicated him from church. No matter how many facts are presented or how much evidence is compiled to verify the testimony of Jesus, a religious heart will never yield to the truth because that's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Will you yield your heart? Will you yield your will to Jesus because he's the son of God? And this man born blind had no way of knowing what the sufferings of a lifetime and, and the miracle he experienced would wind up saying about Jesus to everyone. He told his neighbors without apology, Jesus did this. And he told his family, Jesus did this. And he even told the people who threatened him, Jesus did this for me. He readily admitted, I was the man that was healed. Because everybody who receives a miracle from Jesus isn't ashamed of what they used to be. Why? 
because they're not that anymore. It says in 1 Corinthians, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. He wasn't ashamed to admit that he was the poor blind beggar. He wasn't ashamed to admit that it was Jesus who healed him. And we shouldn't be ashamed to admit that we are only sinners saved by the loving grace of Jesus Christ. Why? Because what Jesus did on the cross for you was very public and it was humiliating. But he did it because he sees you just as you really are and he still loves you. He's not ashamed of you. And Jesus said, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And this miracle is a definitive sign that the Messiah is walking among them. The blind will see. It was a literal fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus will give you the ability to see things that you didn't see before. Jesus gives you the ability to become what you could never be without him. And little did this man know that his lifetime of suffering was leading to an interaction with Jesus that not only would change the course of his life, but the impact it would have 2,000 years later on our lives, on the other side of the world, in a country he could have never imagined. Jesus didn't ask him about his sins or about the good deeds he did. And Jesus didn't even ask him if he thought he was a good person. Jesus asked him, do you believe in the Son of God? It's a simple gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn it but to save the world through him. And Jesus says plainly, I'm the son of God and I can give you eternity. I have the power to show you what you couldn't see and now I want to show you what you really need, me. You have no way of knowing how your pain and your struggles and your response to it will end up displaying God's glory to everyone around you. When, you know, when my mom went through her battle with breast cancer, she told every nurse and every doctor who would listen to her, I believe in Jesus and I believe in his healing power through prayer. In the book of Revelation chapter 12, it says that Satan is overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The words blood of the lamb is just a shorthand. It means the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross. The gospel is not your story. The gospel is Jesus' story. You see, this weapon, this effective weapon, is made up of two parts, two stories. Your story, your testimony, and Jesus' story. Because you and Jesus, together, are unstoppable. 
Can we stand and give thanks to God this morning for what he's done in your life? Come on, just open up your mouth this morning and give him praise for his goodness and his faithfulness to you. Jesus, we bless you this morning. We worship you and we thank you for what you have done in each one of our lives. You've changed us forever.